Yes, I hope I hope it is good because otherwise I recommended a book uh, that uh, that I haven't read yet. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Cloud Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities that can be unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman. I'm Shao Kizawa. And I'm Rob Kernahan. In this week, we're going to be talking about the evolution of software systems. Everybody talks about modernization, but we know it's risky and expensive. So how do you balance running authoring new software with evolving a running system? Joining us this week is John Codemol, CTO and co-founder of LaunchDarkly. Welcome, John. Great to see you. you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about LaunchDarkly? Yes, thank you for having me. My name is John Codemol. I'm the CTO and co-founder of LaunchDarkly. If you're not familiar with LaunchDarkly, we are an eight-year-old startup. We're based in the Bay Area. Uh, our mission is to help teams leverage feature management to deliver change with less risk and maximize the impact of the business value of that change. Okay, so let's start by understanding a little bit about your journey to launch Darkly. So tell us initially about what the core idea was that you thought an organization with a purpose could get behind helping fix. Yeah. So, you know, we, I started the company with my co-founder, Edith, about eight years ago. Uh, and uh, I was working at Atlassian at the time. And, and Edith, my co-founder, was working at Concur. She'd been at TripIt prior to that, which had just gotten acquired by Concur. And um, one of the things that we observed was um, this flaw in the way that people released software, um, namely that when most organizations released a change out into the world. So they invested all this time to build something. And then they wanted to release that change. The process by which they did that was very risky. So essentially, you would just, you know, build your artifact, you go through the entire software development lifecycle, you get ready to go, you ship the thing, you'd flip a load balancer, and then all of a sudden, all of your com- customers are experiencing that change. Hmm. Now, if that change is bad, uh, something's wrong. Maybe that you introduced a defect, uh, a performance regression, or something else. Everybody is seeing that negative impact, and that's not um, optimal. Obviously, a better way to do that is to progressively roll out that change. And the the interesting thing is, back in 2014, 2015, when Edith and I started this company, people were actually getting around that uh, by uh, hacking things like A/B testing platforms to do this kind of to release this kind of change. Um, so they were taking experimentation tools and repurposing them to the degree that they could, uh, even though those tools weren't purpose built for that, uh, that use case. Right. Um, so I, I remember examples of us, um, uh, there was a scenario actually where, uh, at Atlassian, we had to roll back a change and we couldn't figure out how to roll it back quickly enough. It was like a sub zero type of incident. And, uh, we ended up temporarily resolving the issue by rolling out an optimizely experiment to 100% of traffic that kind of disabled the piece of functionality that would, was causing the incident. So um, we realized from that point that there was a market need for this. Hmm. We also coupled that with an observation that a lot of teams had built internal tools to solve this need. And we realized that there was an opportunity to build something commercially that could solve the problem. So perhaps for listeners who and not aware of software release cycle. Maybe try and explain what 
launch darkly does in a way that you know we can get our heads around it yeah uh, for for a, a, you know a, a non-technical audience or a semi-technical audience yeah or, or just not a dev audience yeah um if i go from a completely non-technical perspective it's it's the way i would describe it is when companies release something out into the world even in a non-software context like uh, a fast food restaurant a takeaway restaurant is um testing a new sandwich or something like this, right? I'd like to get involved in that uh, business. If, <laughs> if, if there's a business in testing sandwiches, I'm, I'm in. There, there is. Uh, they do a yeah. massive amount of testing. But that's the important thing, right? Uh, if, if an organization like a, like a McDonald's is releasing a new sandwich, they don't release it to all their franchises uh, without doing substantial testing. And not even just internal testing, right? Like in a, in a, they, these companies do have labs, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's not just in a lab setting or in front of a test audience. They actually release that uh, new sandwich to to a small set of test franchises, and then they evaluate whether that is working in those franchises, and they roll it out more broadly. And that's a logistics problem, right? It's extraordinarily expensive uh, at these organizations that that are you know doing uh, food service at scale. To, to introduce the changes required to serve a new sandwich to their customers. And so it had better be worth it. So they want to de-risk that change as much as possible. And so you apply that into the software setting and you go, well, what's the software analog of that? And that is what LaunchDarkly is in a sense. It's the ability to roll out change, to vet that change in a smaller setting before releasing it more broadly to maximize the impact of that change. And that can be applied both to sort of legacy system as well as like Greenfield or New Build. Exactly. And in fact, I think um, one of the things that I realized about software development is that the legacy case is actually far more important and far more challenging than a lot of the New Build cases. Mm-hmm. As a software developer, uh, I'm going to make up a statistic uh, here, but like something like 80, 90% of the changes that we're making are, are evolutions of an existing system and not, you know, new code. New, a new system. Uh, I don't create a new repo uh, every day and you know build a new microservice from scratch with no repercussions to an existing system. In fact, um, most of the time, I'm uh, editing or modifying an existing system in response to changes in business requirements, changes in scale needs, discovery of defects, etc. Hmm. And so, in fact, the value of LaunchDarkly is actually much more aligned towards helping companies evolve existing systems and navigate that change and the risk involved in in evolving those systems versus new authorship. It does both. Uh, I just think that the value is much greater uh, in in one set of situations. It's rare, isn't it? You get the opportunity to do something completely from scratch and just be free to use all the new technologies. There's always some millstone holding you back from the legacy that you need because part of the transactional architecture runs in it. So it's, it's, it's that just awareness that you always have to deal with the, um, yeah. the legacy at some point, don't you? It has to kick in. Not everyone gets the joy of Greenfield. I, I think it's surprising to me how far through your career you have to get to, to realize that uh, as a software engineer, right? Um, when you go through university, um, you get you get to you, most of the authorship that you're doing is like a brand new project, and so I think a lot of people are unprepared with the reality of you know moving into industry and realizing there's this enormous code base that you are building on top of. And that is such a good point that you come out of the education system, you've cut your teeth in learning how IT is supposed to work, and then the reality of compromise strikes you very hard, isn't it? You go, I learned all this pure IT, and then you come out and you go, oh, it's a bit messier than we all thought in the first game, didn't it? And there's this, this dawning realization occurs over your career where you go, well, it's not quite as perfect as I hope it would be. 
the second time you touch it, it is already legacy, right? So, uh, <laughs> yes, the second commit is legacy, right? Um, but it, it's interesting because this completely changes that realization that, oh, I, I'm actually modifying an existing system that is running in production with real customers using it uh, in the context of a team that is maintaining it. That really changes the way that you approach a lot of things as a software developer. For example, um, when we write code coming out of university, I think we're optimizing a lot of times for authorship, right? Yeah. Uh, writing code. We focus on programming languages, even programming languages designers. I, I have a, a, a background in, uh, in programming languages. Um, they focus on like the clarity of authorship, but really they should be focusing on the clarity of, of readership. Um, how, because that's what you spend most of your time doing code comprehension, reading existing systems. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think if we approach it from that perspective, there's a lot to be gained. So it seems like you've approached it from a feature management perspective rather than say like a universal underlying modernization of code. So it's like, what are we trying to do from a business perspective, create the feature around that. And then launch darkly helps you evolve your software system as a result of taking sort of a business specific view of it. Yeah, well, I would describe LaunchDarkly today as using feature flags as a mechanism for helping companies with that problem. But that fundamental problem of evolving software systems and getting that change out and maximizing the value of, of that change, that is LaunchDarkly's mission. Mm. Uh, right now, it is primarily realized through helping teams leverage feature flags and feature management. Uh, and that is a massive opportunity. There is so much uh, there. It's uh, continually surprising how many use cases there are uh, to leverage feature flags in this in this setting to realize this value. The problem we get a lot, we obviously we talk a lot about digital transformation and cloud transformation, and obviously in those journeys, it's enormously expensive for organizations to consider, you know, bulk modernization of of software as part of that migration journey. You know, I, I have a little specific point of view that says lift and shift is sort of radically undervalued from a point of view of just getting everything there. Launch mm -hmm. Darkly as a, as a tool set and, a, and feature management as an approach, is that a route into system modernization, say post-migration modernization? Yeah, absolutely. I, I believe it is. I, I think it's foundational to that. And I can, uh, I can illustrate that, uh, if you'll permit, with a, with a story of how we've done something like that internally within Launch Darkly, a dog fooding story, um, which, is, cool. which is always great. We actually, um, you know, we're, we're still a relatively small company in the overall scale of things. We have uh, about 550, 600 uh, people on the team today. But, um, you know, we're, we're also eight, nine years old as a company. And so some of the choices that we made early in the history of the company, uh, we're going through modernization efforts right. as well at this at this point. To Shouk's point earlier, it's like every organization's got it, hasn't it? It's just, it's just about how new your legacy is. Yeah, absolutely. That second commit. We've gotten to that. We've gotten yeah. to that second commit. Exactly. Um, and so one of the, one of the things we went through is this massive database migration. We took our core database, uh, that we use for our application and we wanted to shift it to a new database. And we chose that new database because we had shifting business requirements. We wanted to move into a, a multi-region architecture with like an active, active, um, setup. It was a business need. Uh, it also enabled things like data localization. So if we have customers in the UK, we could service them differently and um, around their privacy requirements. So we selected a new database and we had this process of having to migrate everything, all of our core data into this new database. 
And, um, you know, we, we, we ran into the problem that most organizations feel when they go through one of these modernization efforts, it's this enormous tangled ball of wax. And it's so risky that the idea of, okay, we're going to do everything we can to de-risk this. We're going to run this in staging. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to spend months, uh, soak testing this before we have the big day, the big day where we do this migration in production. Um, we thought about that and we realized that is not the modern way to do this. That is not how we are going to uh, achieve a successful outcome here. And so we leverage feature management to sort of like break this down, break the problem down. Let's let every team do their own migration for their collections or their scope of ownership in isolation within their own roadmap. Use feature flags to sort of like um, keep that off and then gradually release each one uh, until the point where collection by collection, month by month, we were migrating pieces of the system over to the new infrastructure. And at the end of the day, customers never realized along the way that this was happening, really. Uh, there was no big launch day. In mm -hmm. fact, um, there was just a day where the, the system had been running in production on the new database. Uh, and the old database was sitting there. For a while, we were actually running them in parallel. And that was some, right. one of the benefits that flags would allow us to do. Something goes wrong, we could roll back. We hit the roll forward point where we realized we no longer needed the old database. And the launch day was basically just a ribbon cutting ceremony. It was a decommissioning ceremony for the old database where we, we, we were all just sort of like really excited to no longer be paying the tax of running this system and retiring the infrastructure felt really good. But there was zero risk and zero impact from a production standpoint because, you know, Three weeks prior, we'd been at 95% on the new system. And we knew nothing was wrong, and we mm. gradually rolled out the last bits. And so was there a point during that migration where the application was running concurrently across two databases? In fact, for months, we were operating in that state. And so there's a bit of a downside there from a cost perspective, sure. but yeah. that is massively outweighed by the risk mitigation. Um, so, so effectively, we could run in modes where like one system, the old system was the source of truth, and we were comparing answers between the two systems. Mm. Um, and then eventually we had confidence to move to the new system and use that as the source of truth. But we, I mean, and if you think about the, the value to the business, the, the, the reduced risk, because with a failure in production comes massive potential reputational damage, and your brand can be not destroyed, but, you know, has a massive knock. And and so, yes, you have to spend on the IT, but actually the benefit to the experience the end users are getting is much, much better and much more valuable. And I think many organizations look at base IT costs, see it as a line item and think, oh, we can't afford that. But actually, the but if you don't, the consequences of your actions could be far more dramatic and hit somewhere completely different in your business well, I think this ch changes the way people need to think about risk with the way their IT delivers the outcome that they're after. It's quite important change in, 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 in mindset shift that you just don't look at the, the base costs. You've got to think about the what ifs um, and avoid the potential pitfalls. Yeah, absolutely. There has to be a, a risk calculus involved. And in fact, that's some of the thing, that's one of the things that we sort of talk to our customers about in terms of like articulating the value of LaunchDarkly. How can we show you or demonstrate to you how much impact we had on your teams and how much business impact we had by, you know, mitigating that risk for you. Sometimes it's a little challenging to do, right? In this database migration story, everything went great. And so, you know, can't A-B test life. I can't necessarily quantify how bad the impact would have been if, if, if we'd done that the old-fashioned way. Hmm. Hmm. I think there are plenty of IT professionals out there that remember that cutover that oh, once yes. goes down is burned indelibly into their mind where they go... 
I'm going to do that differently next time. No, it's never good. Never good. For usual Friday night or a Saturday night. <laughs> like flying by the seat of your pants with everything crossed. Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the ways to think about this from, from a, a risk calculation perspective is like, imagine, imagine the launch day. Okay, how is that going to, op- like operationally, what is that going to look like for us? What are the stress points? And what can we do as a team to eliminate all of those stress points to the point where like, now the launch day that we envision is just that ribbon cutting ceremony, like where we're all just sitting around and I don't know, having a, a glass of bubbly and, and enjoying ourselves. And then, okay, how can we create that state in reality? And, you know, feature flags might be one, uh, one opportunity, but just it's a good way of thinking about de-risking projects. And that viewpoint changes the who's interested in this type of capability. So, you know, you think, oh, it'll be the software engineers, but actually, no, it's going to be the, the business owners and the service owners and all that sort of stuff that sort of say, actually, you need to use this type of approach because the old way of doing things is just too risky and we don't like it anymore. And I don't like to be on conference calls at three o'clock in the morning. Thank you very much. Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I agree with your point. Um, but I would also add that there is so much impact that can help the developer directly from a collaboration perspective. Yeah. Um, just one scenario, for example, we all are in the world of like having a shared staging server, probably, right? We have all these teams collaborating, shipping new change. And then how often are you blocked because staging is down or some un- something bad is happening on staging? That's a collaboration problem. It's just that your customers are your other, you know, your peer engineers and so we can help in that scenario too throughout the software development lifecycle. Let's improve testing for you by creating worlds where you're not impacting, you know, the other consumers of the testing infrastructure. That's a very good point. The systems that need to synchronize are painful. What you're going for is massively parallel, agile approaches where everybody can run at their own pace. So yeah, it's it's a good enabler. It massively reduces frustration in the system as well, doesn't it? For engineering purposes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you implement it once, then you can use it across each and every environment, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I'm interested in um, the conversations you've had with customers in terms of mapping business benefits to this. So have you got any examples or a framework by which you sort of think about decomposing modernization or software system evolution in a, in a different way that connects it more directly to business benefit rather than it looking like you know, a giant expense to just rebuild the same application, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I, I think oftentimes um, the challenge that we have is that the product itself is very Swiss Army knife, right? It, it's not really in and of itself. It is so incredibly flexible in terms of like what it allows you to do because it exists at the, at the code level. Uh, anything is possible in code, basically. One of the ways in which we do this is we map it directly to one of the critical initiatives that an organization is going through. And then we, 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 we're trying to do a better job of sort of saying, okay, here's a paved path that allows you to use this technology for that solution. So a solution might be a database migration where, you know, a, a company will tell us one of the big initiatives that we have this year is this huge migration that we really need to de-risk it or a cloud migration. We're migrating into seven new regions in Azure. We're going multi-cloud. Um, the business value is there, We want, but now how do we actually practically make that happen? Mm-hmm. So some of the use cases that, uh, you know, the cloud migration, database migration, um, mobile applications are another example of this where uh, we help you uh, avoid the sort of like app store release model. And so we help you get mobile applications to market faster by delivering more experiences behind feature flags and avoiding the like the app store approval um, model. 
And then A-B testing and experimentation uh, as another critical example of companies that want to run those types of programs and, uh, and are increasingly using feature flags as a mechanism to run those programs. So maybe just by way of bringing today's conversation to a bit of a close, what advice would you give to CIOs or CTOs who are faced with a problem of needing to modernize their environment, maybe don't have the budget that they need, maybe they're part of all, all the way through like a data center exit? What are the first or second steps that they should take to move towards being able to feature manage in the way that you're describing? Well, I would say perhaps this is this is like overly simple advice, but I think it's it's the right advice. Thinking incrementally, uh, so stepping back from the technology, stepping back from even feature flags or feature management as a mechanism. Forget all the mechanisms. Just think about the migration and recognize that if there's risk involved in it, um, one of the best ways that you can de-risk a project um, from a from a process perspective, but also from an outcomes perspective is to modularize it. So uh, take whatever whatever change, whatever digital transformation, whatever migration uh, effort you have and reduce the problem to how do I make this incremental? How do I modularize it? And then the technology solutions that you need to, to make that a reality, uh, they'll come to, to four. Um, they will come, come uh, they will make themselves apparent. But um, that that is a massive enabler for teams from a productivity perspective and it's a massive way to de-risk these types of things Shalk, what have you been looking at this week? So each week I will do some research on what's trending in tech and this week I want to focus on the following. Can developer productivity be measured? So we all have a picture that comes to mind when we hear the term developer productivity. And for me personally, I think the best description is the measure of how efficiently a developer or the software development team can handle software development operations within a given time frame. And this goes from building to deploying and maintaining the software. So why is it important to measure this? Basically, you can't improve what isn't measured, right? So measuring developer productivity gives you an idea of where the bottlenecks are and what needs to be improved. So what should you measure? First of all, it is essential to measure developer productivity beyond just the many lines of code a developer can write. And this means that you focus more on the quality and the innovative effort that is involved in the whole software development process. And this can be done through metrics. So I've done quite some development projects in my career and was also measured based on the lines of code I generated and also the number of code check-ins I made, commits that I made. And I think every developer knows less lines of code is often better for speed, for readability, etc., and also from a sustainability perspective. So a question for you, John, do you think that measuring development productivity is important and that it can also affect the business outcomes? I love the question. It's been something that I've been thinking about a fair bit uh, over the past few years. Uh, I think it is essential. Um, I think that the measurement techniques that we have right now are in their infancy. So I think you you mentioned lines of code. I think that that is one particular measure that people have a a broader understanding of like, that's not a reasonable thing to measure. 
Uh, and there were also previous efforts, you know, from my past as a software developer to measure, um, to measure productivity and complexity and inefficiency of teams. And I think a lot of those have been debunked. Um, and then there's Dora. You know, the, the Dora metrics is like sort of like one of the, the last, one of the latest sort of like innovations in terms of what, of how we measure developer productivity. And I think there's a lot of really, really important stuff that came out of the Dora work. But, uh, the Dora authors themselves will describe Dora as the starting point. And I think when I think about, uh, Dora and, uh, measuring developer efficiency, I think there are still challenges that we're, we're facing, uh, primarily things like, um, all the metrics that we have are, are proxy metrics around real efficiency. You know, some things are extraordinarily difficult to measure, um, like change failure rates, for example, in Dora. It's extraordinarily challenging to measure that. So even the Dora metrics themselves have methodology problems. So to your, to your question, incredibly important. I think we need more innovation to help us get to a state where we trust the metrics. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is developer efficiency is, necessary it's a necessary set of conditions to measure but it's not sufficient Mm -hmm. uh you can have an enormously impactful or an enormously efficient team that is producing little to no business impact and so there's a completion of that story which is like okay i can measure how efficiently my pipelines are measure how efficiently i'm able to deliver change from a local developer's desktop to production but then there's something beyond that which is like how good is the change that i'm shipping how impactful Mm -hmm. it is to the business and we have to unlock that as well. Is anybody doing it well yet, John, that you've seen? Yeah. I think in some scenarios, it's easier than in others to do so, especially that last piece. You know, I'll, I'll pick a, like a, a dichotomy that I see, and it might not be the right dichotomy, but it's something that I've observed, is, is uh, you look at uh, organizations, like companies like Spotify or other B2C companies, and you think about the impact of those teams. A lot of those teams are focused on like growth initiatives, I- impacting KPIs, et cetera. And so they can be much more quantitative about the impact that they're having. Uh, and so they have a better ability to connect uh, efficiency with measurement of business outcomes compared to, uh, for example, uh, B2B companies where that type of like growth style building is tougher and attribution is harder. So, you know, you, you choose to invest in building something, you build a capability and then let's say you have a 300 enterprise customers, that's the entirety of your customer base, and you have an adoption rate of 10% among it. So now you're talking about 30 customers impacted. Now you have to connect that to their contract values somehow. That attribution is really hard. So was that investment worth it? That's a harder question to answer versus, you know, we know that for the Spotify example, um, 30 seconds more of session time equals X, X uplift to subscription renewal, uh, much more scientific. And I think, Dave, your point comes back to modern operating models. So when you have a modern operating model that's business aligned, product based, it's easier to show the value stream, the connectivity. You've got rid of the layer cake of traditional IT working, and then you Mm. don't have this obfuscation of metrics that occurs and how that team measures themselves. It's much easier to relate back to the business outcomes that you discussed. And I think that's very important. Another good reason to have a modern operating model is the full cost of associated with and the value of delivering that outcome is is in a domain that's easier to get control of, understand, and mm. measure as an entity. Where where, where you get this horrible mutualized IT structures of the past, you know, the nineteen nineties called they want their IT operating model back. It becomes so hard to measure value through shared teams that you just put your head in your hands and you go, "How do we ever get out of this mess?" And I I, I think that pivot is really important to the point 
I wonder if the sort of focus on sustainability and sustainable code sort of helps drive the right behaviors as well here, John, do you think? I think it does. Um, I think it's sort of, again, like a necessary prerequisite. Um, if there is massive debt in terms of like maintaining the code base, all of your efficiency metrics are, are going to tank. So yeah, I do see that connection. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be fledgling at the moment, but it, it really does seem to me that sort of sloppily written code that's misusing resources on an ongoing basis is not only less sustainable for obvious reasons, but it's just going to cost you more money. Yeah, I, I will say, though, that the the ability to measure that, the, the, the quality of the code itself is extremely rudimentary, even more rudimentary than our efficiency metrics. So uh, if, if like the risk associated with changing a piece of code or the, the debt associated with code, it's super hard to measure. And mm. the things that I've seen in my past, like um, cyclomatic complexity or things like that, uh, not very good at measuring the quality of the code. I do see lots of customers still struggling with this, to, to put this in, into place correctly. Setting up a wide variety of metrics is extremely important. Metrics that are based on reaching the business goals for successfully delivering the software and quality of the product and the business outcomes. And not only for the individual developer, but for the team as a whole. And giving these insights to the development team can really improve your product, but also can support them to become more efficient. Very good. Thank you, Schauk. Uh, good discussion. Good provocation. John, thank you also for a great conversation today. Really thoughtful and interesting to see where you know modernization technologies are going to get us to, where drivers like sustainability and putting a different pressure on how we efficiently develop code is a really fascinating emergent area, I think. So thanks for your time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Now, we end up every episode of the show by asking our guests what they're excited about doing next. Now, that could be, uh, I'm going to see a great film at the weekend, or that could be a really exciting thing from a business perspective you're looking forward to. So, John, what are you excited about doing next? Uh, I am excited about uh, reading a book next. Um, and so uh, the book I'm uh, about to read, I'm hoping to read that's uh, next on my queue is this book called Scaling People, mm. um, Tactics for Management and Company Building. And uh, I think it's a Stripe Press book. I'm really excited. I, I got, I've gotten a few good recommendations from people I trust on the quality of, the, uh, of the, that book. So looking cool. forward to that. Great recommendation. Who's it by? Uh, it is by uh, Claire Hughes-Johnson. Fantastic. So a huge thanks to our guest this week, John. Thank you so much for being on the show. To our sound and editing wizard, Ben. And of course, to all of our listeners. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter. Dave Chapman, Rob Kernahan, and Xiao Kizal. Feel free to follow or connect with us and let us know if you have any ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you in another reality next week.